Welcome to the Vox Church Podcast. We're so excited that you're taking some time today to listen to today's message. If something from today's message specifically touches your heart, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders would love to connect with you. Also, make sure you visit voxchurch.org for more information about our church and upcoming service locations and times. God bless you. Vox. If you're new, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor. Thank you so much for being here. Vox is one church that is now meeting in 11 locations, friends. And so we want to say good morning to our whole church. If this is kind of new for you, it might feel a little weird, but in New Britain and Clinton, especially who started last week, we love you. But Worcester and Stanford and Hartford and Springfield, come on, can we put our hands together for our whole church? Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to church. We are so honored that you've joined us, whatever location you're at today. It really is an honor to have you. So thankful to, uh, to be able to worship Jesus with you and dive into the scriptures. Before we get to Matthew chapter 6, I asked my wife Christy to come on out and talk about something that's coming up in just a few weeks. Can you welcome Christy as she comes? Come on, you can do a little better than that. Here you go. Just say hi. Hi, babe. Good morning. Good morning. Well, listen, November 4th, we have our Illum conference coming up. Illum is the women's ministry here at Vox, and we have an annual conference that we do. And if you have yet to look on our webpage and find out information and get a ticket, you're going to want to do that today, okay? God is inviting us into a greater awareness of his holiness. He's holy. He's always with us, which means that every moment of our lives is holy. And so we're going to spend the day in the word of God, within community, talking about what does it look like to be more aware of God's presence in our lives and allow that to change the way that we live. And so if you've never been to an Illumina event before, you're going to want to come. It's for every woman in this room across all of our campuses, our new women in New Britain and Clinton. Sign up, illumconference.com, grab a ticket. It's going to be incredible. What's the date? November 4th. November 4th. All right. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. You're going to want to go. I'll be there. I'm going to sneak in, but uh, I'll have a wig in the back. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own 
trouble. This is God's word. I want to speak today under the heading playing chords, playing chords. We're going to talk about playing chords today. Would you pray with me? Let's open our hearts to God at every location. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the Sermon on the Mount, this uh, fourth part as we walk through this sermon. I pray in the name of Jesus that these words that were spoken so many years ago by Jesus Christ, I pray that they would come alive in us right now. As we understand the Sermon on the Mount and what it means for us, I pray that, Jesus, you'd make us more like you, that you would change us, even today. Let's just take a second. Wherever you are today, open up your heart to God. Lord, I open up my heart to you right now. Would you do a work in Jesus' name? Amen. 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 It all started when I was eight, after my great aunt had passed. Seeing her in the open casket freaked me out. Inwardly, I was so afraid, and it manifested itself when my parents were away in Florida. A babysitter suddenly found me running around the house screaming, I'm dying, I'm dying. My heart was beating so fast, and I was breaking into a cold sweat. Over the years, this would happen again, but as I grew older, I learned to say to myself, relax, relax. In my professional work years, looking at the nonverbal communication of coworkers would give rise to these attacks until I learned to take off my glasses in meetings so that I could not see others' reactions to my comments. That did the trick. David McCann, Akron, Ohio. If you knew me, if you had a drink, if we had a drink together one evening, you would notice that I have a perplexing habit of taking my pulse the way a runner might at the end of a race, two fingers at the neck, under the jaw, right side. Even though I'm seated on a stool with a scotch in my hand, not crossing a finish line, clutching a paper cup of water. I do this, the pulse check, because I fear I'm not getting the oxygen necessary to keep my frail human machine going. I've been convinced of my own slow suffocation for at least a decade, and the steady beat of blood beneath my fingers makes me feel relaxed. It's the reassurance that I'm still alive. If we were friends, you'd know that vacations are not my forte because I am someone who needs to be busy. Very busy, you see. When I'm not, uh, when things are quiet, my mind is unoccupied, I inevitably feel the rush of panic. Hot pins down my back, hands going white with cold, head swimming, knees weak, reality at a coming apart at the edges, nothing feeling totally real, not me, not you, just a sense that we're all temporary, meaningless blips. J.W. Garrity, Massachusetts. My boyfriend tries to understand and he's supportive about it, but he thinks it's silly to worry about things that are out of my control. He might be right, but that doesn't make it possible for me. Sometimes I go days without anxiety, without noticing, and when it comes back, it's a shock. I know I shouldn't feel this way. I know I should seek help, but I don't have a doctor in this city. I don't uh, understand the medical system here very well. And the idea of finding a doctor, of describing how I feel and trying out different treatments, whether it's therapy or drugs, that paralyzes me. It freezes me in place. So it becomes easier to do nothing, to continue to cope badly in the hope that one day I'll just suddenly be better. Because suffering almost every day is somehow easier than asking for help. Katie, Toronto. All three of these people have something in common. And that something in common is anxiety. Anxiety. Since the late 1950s, the number of people who are suffering from anxiety in the United States has been steadily climbing year after year after year. Today, it is by far the number one mental health diagnosis across the nation. And most of us have significant personal experience with anxiety. You know, for me, it almost always starts in my body, where I'll start to feel a pressure in my chest or a random pain. 
that won't go away. And I'm sure that you probably have your tells, too, if you've become aware of its reality. And, of course, anxiety is not a new challenge, right? People have been anxious through all of human history. But I think that our modern age has created a cocktail of circumstances that has enhanced and magnified anxiety to new levels. And so we've got social media that's always creating this pressure of comparison with one person to the next. Then we have this 24-hour news cycle that keeps us updated on every single terrible thing and uh, that's happened on the earth. And then we got this endless consumerism that you need that new jacket, you need those new shoes, you need that new car, you you got to figure out how. And then you add a two-year pandemic that shut the whole world down and mass shootings that spread all across our nation and every type of public gathering and terrorism and earthquakes and floods. And soon the panic becomes the norm, right? And we try to understand this. We try to kind of rationalize it and figure it out. And we often turn to science and we say, well, how can we scientifically understand this anxiety? But, but many of the scientists of our day have embraced the narrative that you are just an evolutionary accident. That there's no purpose or rhyme or reason to your life. That we are just spinning on a tiny little rock in the middle of a big black sea of nothingness. And really, nothing matters in this world. Well, that'll bring you comfort, right? And so we find ourselves in this position and we turn to our technology. And our technology, we can escape, we can hide there. But that unending flood of information breaks us down. And so our bodies start to feel the pressure and the weight. Doctors tell us that when your body suffers from anxiety, adrenaline gets pumped through your system. And you can't maintain that heightened sense of concern or fear for very long and soon you actually start to internally burn up. And so you might call it stress. You might call it hypertension. You might call it high blood pressure. You might call it an ulcer. But these are the physical manifestations of a person under anxiety. And sometimes it's about a particular event, right? Like, oh my goodness, I have to go take that test. Or I have to go see that person. Or I have to go do that thing and I'm scared. So, you know, an event can ensue anxiety. But for a lot of us, it's not even about a particular event. It is just this constant state of tension. And so on the inside, your life feels like this. Give me that picture. Right? It's just like, I'm just swimming. And I feel like Dunna, I feel like dunna, I feel like dunna, 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 and that music is always playing in the back of my mind, and so it doesn't really matter what's happening or where I'm going or what I'm doing, I am always on edge, I'm always thinking what if, I'm always waiting for the next shoe to drop, and I'm always living at that heightened state. I'm sure you've been following the news. I watched this interview recently with a woman in Israel. Friends, pray for Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for a miracle that God would somehow in his kindness and grace and mercy intervene in this terrible war. But she was explaining how um, she was chatting with a friend in a living room when men started pounding on her door. They knew something wasn't right. They hid in the closet. The men broke their door down, barged into the house, realized that they were hiding in a locked closet and started shooting into the closet. Just so happened that her friend was closer to the door and absorbed every bullet. And so she lay there holding her friend's body as she died. And she lived to tell the story. But something inside of her died in that closet 
and her life will absolutely never be the same. So how do we live in a world like this? How do, <laughs> how do we live? It's a legitimate question. Can turn to therapy and medication and doctors, very helpful tools. Thank you, God, for these things. We can turn to exercise, relaxation methods. Okay, those are helpful too. You can get a stress ball for work. You can get a mouth guard for the night. Grateful for those things. They can be helpful. Nothing wrong with those. God can use all these things. But oftentimes in our lives, we somehow fundamentally miss a essential element to coping with the anxiety of this world. Somehow, in the midst of all of our methods, we forget or neglect God's invitation to wholeheartedly turn our lives over to him. We don't realize that God is not ever going to be an added strategy to our already busy lives, but that relationship with him requires that he becomes central to every aspect of our life, that he becomes first in our lives, that he is not just an addition to our already planned out purposes, but rather he is life itself. And if we will wholeheartedly make him our source and our center, he promises things like hope and peace and healing and as we turn to him, we experience that that's not an empty promise, but it's actually real. And so it was even looking over these last three weeks at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached by Jesus. We're now in the middle of it in part four. And we've seen that each week Jesus is changing the way we see the world. He's introducing to us a different way to live. And I'm telling you right now, you can't tack it on. It has to become primary. It has to become central. And he talked about this idea of true virtue, right? What is true virtue? True virtue is not a collection of good deeds or, or nice habits. True virtue is an inner change, a change that occurs deep on the inside when you experience what Jesus called the new birth, where you realize the love of God expressed through you through the gospel, and you accept the forgiveness of sins, the adoption into God's family, and his love. Love isn't just a theory in your mind, but a reality in your heart, and it changes you. From the inside out, something begins to change. And so we've looked at that change through the Sermon on the Mount. And we said, well, how do you live that? How do you experience that? Well, you start when you follow the yellow brick road. You remember? Follow the yellow brick road, the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes actually outline for us a condition of the heart that experiences the new birth. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be satisfied with the righteousness of Christ. Right? And then from there, we begin to experience that change. Last week, we talked about how the relationship between you and God has fundamentally changed because of the cross. And until that gets deep inside of you, these truths and this hope and this peace is really all just theory. Because of the cross, God says that he no longer sees you as a condemned sinner, but he is committed eternally to treating you as his child. And as we internalize that truth, accept that truth, believe that truth, a new way of life begins to emerge, right? A different way of doing life, new values, a new focus. And so here, Jesus begins this section of the sermon with three quick metaphors, bing, 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 right? He talks about treasure, he talks about eyesight, and he talks about a master-servant relationship. Treasure, eyesight, and a master, right? Now, each metaphor, he's contrasting what we could call the way of the world with the way of the kingdom. He's trying to show us how life looks different when you know that God is your father. How life, how your priorities change, how your values change, how your desires change when you actually believe the gospel for yourself. 
And so he gives us three pictures or three metaphors to help us understand. And fundamentally, each one says the same thing. He's saying that those who don't know God as their father will inevitably live for today. But those who know him as their father will be driven by an eternal purpose. Going from living from today to connecting to eternity, right? And so each one builds on this. So do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Now as soon as we hear that, if we're honest, it is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Everybody's storing up treasures on earth. I mean, that's why you have a job right? That's why you're working. I want to work so I can get those new sneakers. I want to work so I can get that new car. I want to work so I can get that nicer house and those nicer things and have more comforts and go on vacation. I want to do all these things and I want to add it all up and add it all up and add it all up. And in the midst of that all, Jesus says it's a bad investment. It's a bad investment. Now he's not anti-savings account. There's other scriptures about being responsible, but he is teaching us that we can't live a life that is not radically reoriented by eternity. See, when Christ rose from the dead, he inaugurated the new age of human history. It was the first fruits of a new creation. And right now we live in the overlap where his kingdom has already come, but it has not yet full, fully manifested. And in that overlap, he's teaching the children of God to live for eternity in the midst of today. And so he wants you to understand, hey, 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 hey. Do you realize that very soon you will stand in front of God and give an account for your life? If that has not changed you, then you have not tied into reality yet. You're still living a dream. You're still deceived. Thus, he gives us the second picture where he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. He says, if your eye is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. What's he talking about? He's comparing spiritual vision to physical vision. He's showing us that our lives must be marked by spiritual vision. And if you're living for the here and now, you're blind. If you think that this is all there is, if you think accumulating comforts is what life is about, you are actually blind to the truth. That's what Jesus is trying to warn us of. He's saying you can live your whole life chasing things that will never satisfy, but heaven is real, hell is real, all of this is real. And when you start to see it, your whole life takes on new purpose. Your whole life takes on new vision. It's like a man who gets his eyesight back. And it's like, wow, I can see. I can see that life is about more than just doing and living and acting. But life is about God. Life is about his eternal purpose. Life is about his plan for me. And then he, he wraps these three analogies together with a third one. Where he says, for no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one or despise the other. Love the other. You'll despise the one or you'll serve the other. He says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God. And money. Now, if you look at a Bible, you'll find that where it says you can't serve God and money, there's a little note next to the word money. Because the author does something strange there. Rather than translating it into Greek, Matthew uses the, and that's what the New Testament is written in, Matthew uses the Aramaic word for money, and that's the word mammon, okay? It's the word mammon, and the way he positions it grammatically in the sentence, he intentionally personifies mammon. And so he treats Money or mammon like a person. 
okay? In other words, he's saying, okay, money itself is a natural commodity, right? You can use it for good or you can use it for evil. But without the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts naturally cling to money. We naturally grow, grab a hold of money. And so mammon is actually a spiritual force. It's a spiritual force that attaches itself to money and seeks to take the place of God in our hearts. It seeks to teach us or convince us that security comes from things. It teaches us that, that our control is actually available to us. We can control our lives. We can control our future if we just had enough. And so mammon is this little voice inside of you that says, if I just had, then I'd be secure. If I just had, then I'd be significant. If I just had, then I'd be safe. Security, significance, safety, only things that God can give you. And so now mammon plays that record in your mind. And every time you obey it, you got to see this, every time you obey it, you become a little more blind to reality. Every time you obey it, your eyes get a little dimmer to the truth of God. And so Jesus, through these three illustrations, is warning us that there's a real difference between those who follow the world and those who follow the kingdom. That there's a real difference between those who live for today and those who live for eternity. And he's saying, don't let your heart be deceived. You have to wake up. You have to intentionally put your treasure in heaven. You have to ask God for eyes to see. And you have to be careful around this thing called money because it's coming for you. It's trying to give you a sense of purpose and control outside of God, but those in the kingdom say no and live beyond the deception of that foreign God. And so there's an interesting nuance here that right from these three analogies, Jesus pivots to anxiety. And he does that because he understands that mammon can never deliver on its promises. That when I live for the here and now, rather than feeling more secure through wealth, through power, through my assets. Rather than finding peace and hope and joy, and someone here today, you know this for yourself, that the more you accumulate and the more you insulate and the more you protect yourself and the more you look away from God and toward things for your sense of security and purpose, the more enslaved you become. And it doesn't produce peace. It increases anxiety. Did you know that right now in Nigeria, which is a developing nation, there are millions and millions of people who lack the basic necessities of food, water, and shelter. Millions. Uh, very few of us here at Vox today are struggling for food, clothing, or shelter, right? And yet, statistically, check this out, Americans are five times more likely to suffer from severe anxiety than Nigerians. How is that possible? Now, if, if, if things work the way we naturally think they work, Nigerians would be 100 times more anxious than, than Americans. And yet Americans are picking out which monk fruit or stevia they want in their latte. And we are so anxious about it. See, the problem's not what you have or don't have. The problem's what has you. The problem is that you can only break the power of mammon Come on, somebody, by the power 
of the gospel. A new narrative has to take root in your life. A new story needs to override the false story that my security and my control come from my things. And so Jesus gives us three illustrations. you got to follow this. And then he gives us three commands. Three different times. Jesus says, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Now, if you're a Christian here, most Christians and even non-Christians that might be here today, you would kind of say like, amen, right? Like, I don't want to be anxious, right? That's the type of life I want to live. And if you want to follow Christ, you want to store up treasures in heaven. You want to have eyes and have vision for your life that goes beyond this world. You don't want to be a slave to money. You want to be a slave to God, right? And so those are things that we desire. And then we pair with that his command. Don't be anxious. Don't anxious. So I read this text and I find myself going, amen. But how do I do this? I don't want to be anxious, but telling an anxious person not to be anxious is not very helpful, right? It's like, hey, don't be anxious. Like, oh, now I'm even more anxious because I've been anxious about being anxious. Like, I don't know how to do this. If I could just choose not to be anxious, I would have chosen that a long time ago, wouldn't you? Right? That doesn't really help Jesus. How do we do this? And that's why, for the rest of this chapter, Jesus teaches us to play chords. Can you guys bring out my, uh, my instrument? Justin Beardsley. Thank you so much. Come on, give him a hand. Give him a hand. Thank you, sir. Playing chords, playing chords. Thank you, my brother. Now, I don't know if you play an instrument or if you play a guitar or whatever, but the guitar is really a chord-driven instrument, right? So to play chords, you need to know a little bit about music, right? They call it a triad. A chord is the root note plus a third and a fifth, right? And you add those things together. You're like, I didn't come for music class. Stay with me, all right? You add those things together. Now, you could play notes all day. Or maybe you should go. Right? You can play notes like that, right? You can do that. That's fine. Or you can learn to play chords. And it sounds different. See, when you play a note, it doesn't have the fullness and the wholeness that a chord has. But when you play chords, the whole guitar comes alive, right? Now, those three notes combined add life to the guitar. They enable the guitar to be all that it was intended to be because the instrument was created to play chords. Now, in the same way that a guitar was created to play chords, so your life was created to have a harmony to it, to have a wholeness to it, to actually have reality come together around the truth of God. And so in this little text, as I studied it and prayed for about it, what I realized is that Jesus in this text is teaching our hearts to play chords. He's teaching us to play chords and he spends the rest of the text giving us the three notes of the chord that quiets anxiety in our lives. He gives us three specific notes that when they are played together, the anxious thoughts subside. The fearful uh, physical reactions come down because there is a power beyond the natural that enables us to have peace in a storm. And so I want to show it to you. Follow with me. The first note we find in the birds. Look at verse 26. Look at what he says. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much of much more value than they? What do you know about birds? Well, birds are amazing creatures, right? They can do all kinds of amazing things. A lot of birds, they don't have any storage for food at all. 
They don't store food anywhere. They have no nest in the ground that stores food, no nothing. And people say, you know, things like, oh, she eats like a bird. I hope she doesn't eat like a bird because a lot of birds eat their entire body weight in food every day. It's a lot of food, right? That is a lot of food. It's a lot of food to not have a plan for. Think about it. Jesus is saying, I want you to consider this. I want you to think about it. These birds have no plan for their own sustenance, and yet they still have enough food. I have never in my life seen a malnourished bird. I've seen all kinds of malnourished creatures, right? But never a malnourished bird. The birds always seem to have more than enough. And Jesus is telling us here, hey, God put those birds on earth to give you the first note of the cord that sets you free from anxiety. And that first note of the cord that sets you free from anxiety is the providence of God. The providence of God. Let's unpack this. Verse 27, he says it like this. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? I like that because he doesn't say you can't subtract hours from your lifespan. Some of us have been subtracting for quite a while. He says you can't add hours, okay? You can't add hours. In other words, what he's saying is God has already set the number of hours for your life, and you don't get to choose it. He may let you live another hundred years, or he may take you tonight. He gets to choose, you don't. Now, that's terrifying for someone who doesn't know who God is, but what we see in this text is his providence. Now, what does it mean, his providence? Sometimes we get those theological words confused. Well, God's sovereignty means that God is all-powerful. He is king over the earth, okay? He can do whatever he pleases. That's what the scripture says. But his providence is a little bit different than his sovereignty. His providence just doesn't say that he can do whatever he wants. The, his providence says that he actually has a plan and a purpose to do whatever he wants in the world. And so God is orchestrating events behind the scenes for his glory and for your good. And that's why the word providence has in it provide. Because God has committed himself to all who will trust him to provide whatever it is that you need. Romans chapter 8. And we know, except that some of us don't know, but maybe we learned today, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice that it doesn't say he works for the good of all the perfect people or he walks works for the good of all the exceptional people or all the handsome people or all the beautiful people he says he works for the good of those who love him who are called friend put your hope in christ and you are called by him to be blessed so this is a promise what's jesus saying he's saying look take the time consider it reflect upon it think about it do you actually believe in a god like that do you believe in a god that works all things for the good of those who love him? Do you believe that? Because the world around us is full of not good. And it doesn't say that all things are good. Because if you've lived more than five minutes, you know that's not true. A lot of things are bad. A lot of things are evil. A lot of things are broken. A lot of things produce trauma and hardship and sorrow. And that's why we need to learn to play chords. We have to begin to play the note of God's providence in our heart. We have to begin to allow that note to resonate inside of us. And we ask ourselves, does he care about my health problems? Does he care about my teenage kid? Does he care about that issue at work? Does he care about those things? Psalm 147, describing God. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain. And he makes the grass grow on the hills. I think that you and I haven't realized how involved God is. 
He makes the grass grow. The Bible is saying that this world is not just some mechanical function. This world is not just a machine, a clock, the clockmaker started and walked away. But that everything, everything, God is right there. He's right there. He's going, grow. Some of us are like, I wish it would grow a little less. You know, it's like, I could save some money on landscaping, right? Grow. The old preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said it like this. Look at this. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against a steamboat has its orbit as well as the sun in the heavens. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. God is not distant. God is not absent. He cares for the birds. Now, some of us hear that and we think of fate. Providence and fate are not the same thing. Okay? We are not fatalists as Christians. Fate says you can't change anything. And whatever is must be. But that's not what providence says. Providence goes deeper. It goes into the very mind of God. It teaches that your choices matter, that God has given you certain responsibilities that you have to uphold. But at the same time, even deeper than your decisions and responsibilities, he is working and moving and shaping and upholding and governing. And all things he orchestrates for his glory and for your good. So what does this do on the inside? It teaches us that this life is not meaningless. That nothing is meaningless. A cup of coffee with a friend, hanging out in the lobby, a prayer prayed in the dark. That nothing is meaningless. That your life is not an accident. That every breath you take was foreordained by the God who made you. So consider the birds and let that note ring in your heart the note of his providence. I believe in a God who has a plan. I believe in a God whose plan is to provide. I believe in a God who is orchestrating things for his glory and my good. And as that note gets in you, strength comes with it. But it's not enough. Accord needs three. And so he says, don't just consider the birds, consider the flowers. Consider the flowers. They are dressed more beautifully than Solomon. Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? I like that phrase, so clothes. He so clothes, like he is lavish in his clothing of the flowers of the field. The flowers of the field are not necessary. Life could go on without them. And yet, God makes them beautiful for a reason. Why does God make the flowers of the field beautiful? He makes the flowers of the field beautiful to show you that he is a God who cares. That he's a God who cares. He cares most specifically about you. Far more than flowers. And this is what the cross teaches us. That because of Christ's sacrifice, God no longer sees you as a sinner condemned for your sins, but rather as his child adopted into his family. The spirit you received, Romans 8, does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. This is straight from God's word. By him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself, I pray this happens for you right now, testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, friends, the first note is the providence of God, but the second note is the love of the Father. The love of the Father. How loud does that note ring in your heart? Does it ring so loudly that it drowns out your concerns, your worries, your fears? 
the love of the Father. Do you believe in the love of the Father? I want you to notice something in this text. I want you to notice that, that Jesus is using a particular argument to convince us, okay? In the Latin, it's called an a fortiori argument, okay? Now, it's a little strange, but that just means from the greater to the lesser, okay? It was a classic way to argue a point in ancient Israel, okay? This a fortiori argument means that uh, from the greater to the lesser. So the speaker shows you since he does all of this, certainly he can do just this other thing, right? Since he does the bigger thing, certainly he'll do the lesser thing. So I've used this example before. It's helpful. It's like, okay, Joe is a bodybuilder, and Joe can lift 500 pounds over his head. And so if Joe can lift 500 pounds over his head, can Joe lift 10 pounds over his head? And the answer is yes. That's an a fortiori argument, right? If Joe can lift 500, then the 10 is included in the 500. That's the argument that Jesus is making. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, the God of the universe keeps every little atom in place, and he provides for every single bird. Not a single one of them falls to the ground apart from his care. And so if he can do that, he's not going to forget about your electric bill. He's not going to forget about your health issue. He's not going to forget about your crazy kid or that divorce you went through he is going to provide for you there too and if he clothes the grass of the field with all of his beauty certainly that means he also cares for every little detail of your life that's an a fortiori argument probably the most important place in the entire bible where this type of argument is used is matthew chapter 8 or excuse me romans chapter 8 verse 32 in romans chapter 8 verse 32 paul writes this he says it's an a fortiori argument see it he says he who did not speak Spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the greater. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see what he's saying there? He's saying that if you had to ask God, what is the most lavish, most sacrificial, most radical, most generous thing that the God of all the universe could ever do for the human race? He would say to give his son. That's what he would say. Because between God the Father and God the Son, there has existed for all of eternity the strongest bond in the universe. The Son is the center of the Father's love, the center of the Father's glory. But something happened on Calvary that changed the world forever. The Father handed over his Son to be crucified, and the Son went willingly. And they did this that we might see the very heart of God. And so Paul concludes, if God is really like this, if God is really like this, then we can trust him with everything. And this is how you overcome your deepest anxiety. But that's just two notes. You need a third note. You need a third note. The providence of God, the love of the Father, He gives us the third note in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The third note is the promise to you. The promise to you. Now, what does that mean? As I looked at this text over the last number of days, I couldn't get past those two little words, to you, to you, to you. Because a lot of us believe in God's promises, but you just don't believe in God's promise to you. See, it hasn't become personal yet, right? It hasn't become yours yet. It's a nice idea. It's a good concept. 
but it's not a promise to you. Maybe it's to grandma, maybe it's to your friend, maybe it's to your very holy spouse, but it's not to you. It's not to you. And because it's not to you, the anxiety remains. Because it's not to you, you can hardly breathe. Because it's not to you, you're chewing up mouth guards every night. Because it's not to you, you're squeezing that stress ball all the time. Because it's not to you, you can identify with J.W. Garrity and with David McCann. You can identify with those that you have your own little ticks, the things you do to take your glasses off just to cope with the moment. Because you're working from a paradigm that says, I'm all alone. And no one cares. And no one's coming to rescue me. And I've got to manage this moment on this little rock spinning through the black darkness of outer space. And make the most of it. But I don't have a promise. And God says, yes, you do. That's the third note. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The revelation that God has made a promise to me. That's what changes me. And it brings these three truths together inside of me. Philippians chapter 4. And my God will meet all your needs according to his riches, the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Has his promise become your strength? Has his promise restructured your heart? What do you have to do? It's the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Wholeheartedly abandon yourself to him. Fully embrace him. And then play those three notes together. Let those three notes resonate in your heart. Play them again and again and again and again. Study them. Reflect upon them. Consider them. Get them inside of you. God is the God of providence. He has a purpose and a plan. Every day that I live is marked out by him. He put me on this earth for a reason, and he will keep breath in my lungs until my plan is, until his plan for me is done. I know that if I'm breathing, I've got purpose. That if I'm here, he has a reason. And so I trust him for today, and I trust him for eternity. And so I've got the providence of God ringing in my ears and then I've got the love of the Father. He's not just some distant clockmaker. He's the one who gave his son for me. He's the one who loves me with an everlasting love and he already proved it on the cross. He is the God who cares and who sees. Just look at the birds. Just look at the flowers and it's not just an ambiguous theoretical concept. It's a promise to me. It's a promise to me. It's mine. I grab a hold of it. I take it for myself and I use it to Fight back the anxiety that suffocates. I use it to push back the anxious thoughts and the fears. And as I do, my heart starts playing chords. And I realize that all along, I got a song in me. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you come? Stand with me today. Every location. Hello, P.
peace, hello joy, hello love. That's the song. Hello strength, hello hope, it's a new horizon. Do you hear that? Hello. Hello peace. Hello love. That's the song. Hello. Hello, hope, it's a new horizon. Let's pray. Come on, all together. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that even as we sing this song this morning, that the Holy Spirit would meet us even right now, and that we would welcome hope and peace and joy. Lord, that today, even now, by the power of your Spirit, the sun would begin to rise in every individual heart and mind. Lord, I pray that those that are here today that have been in a life and death battle with anxiety, that God, even now, we would start playing chords. That even now, we would take hold of the truth of God's providence, the love of the Father, and His promise to me. And those notes would come together in our hearts, and that we'd begin to find a strength that is beyond the natural. Come on, at every location, would you lift your hands right now? I want to invite you to give God your anxiety. I want you to, to give Him right now your fears of tomorrow, your worries of today. I want to invite you right now to give Him your shame from your past, and God, your your concerns for the future. Give it all to him right now. Lift it up to him. Say, God, I can hardly breathe some days. God, I've got this stress pulsating through my body. God, I've got this worry that's suffocating me, and I don't know how to change and begin to hold on. I believe in your promise. I believe in your power. I believe in your love. Lord, I pray that right now, even as we sing this song, it would mark a moment of supernatural change in the lives of your people. We welcome you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today to this Vox Church sermon. If something from today's message spoke to you and you've just made the decision to follow Jesus, text Vox Church, all one word, to 97000, and one of our leaders will help you as you begin your journey with Christ. God bless you.